I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. For this installment of Orbital Path, we wanted to revisit an old episode of Transistor, which is actually a separate PRX science podcast. And this episode of Transistor helped pave the way for Orbital Path to become its own show. And we liked it, so we wanted to play it again. In this episode, we looked at the possibility of life in our own solar system, as well as the religious and philosophical implications of searching for life outside the Earth. I remember the first time I actually came into contact with a real meteorite, and I think it was in the Field Museum in Chicago. The meteorite was this big lump of metal, and there were holes in it. It was a very irregular surface, and you could actually get your little fingers down into the holes. It, it still smelled kind of metallic, and it, it had that wonderful rough texture. And it was one of the few things in the museum you could touch, because quite honestly, nothing else is going to hurt these things. They're, they're, they're so solid. The description of this chunk of metal said that it had come from the asteroid belt, which was this place between the planets Mars and Jupiter. And I remember patting this this cold metal body and thinking, this used to be in space. And somehow it's ended up here in Chicago, and I'm, I'm this little kid patting it with my hand. That journey is something that I could never really forget. Those big chunks of metal in the Field Museum seemed sort of eerie and dramatic, but, but honestly kind of dead. You know, there was just chunks of metal. It was probably in college that I learned that, there, that some meteorites are very carbon-rich, the sort of stuff that our chemistry is made of. We call organic molecules, which means they're based on carbon. And organic doesn't necessarily imply that there's life, but it, it means you have the right sort of building blocks. And some of these carbon-rich meteorites actually have more organic compounds than are used in my body. And this was one of the things that really got us thinking, where did these molecules that make us up come from? You know, is it possible that the organics here on Earth right now, the things responsible for all life, may have come from space originally? And you know, some of the building blocks of life, like the bases of our DNA, like adenine and glycine is one of the, the parts of our proteins, these things have been found in meteorites. We know this. You know, I, I think about Crosby, Stills, and Nash when they were singing, you know, we are stardust, we are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. They were actually really onto something. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we So what we're still trying to figure out is how to prove this really direct connection between meteorites and us. And, and what, if anything, do meteorites say about life on Earth and the origin of life? And might they even have keys for unlocking the mysteries of extraterrestrial life? To find some answers, I visited Danny Glavin at the Astrobiological Analytical Lab at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. This is one of the places I actually come when I need to cheer myself up a little bit about science because so much of science is sitting in front of a computer screen and, and like it just doesn't seem right. But in here they've got they've got vials and tubes and they, they sometimes wear lab coats. It's pretty amazing. I'm... Hey, Danny. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> so nice to see you here today. Thank yeah, you so much for letting me come in. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I, uh, I, I love coming down here. You, you guys have a room full of the most incredible mad scientist-looking equipment over here. <laughs> I just, I mean, it, it just makes me smile. Yeah, we get that a lot. We get that a lot. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is, this is my playground. I mean, we're, we're getting rocks, uh, you know, that fall on the Earth from space. Some of these rocks are older than the age of the Earth. 
um, you know, real extraterrestrial samples, and we get to play around with them, you know, like rocks in our backyard here. I often describe you guys as sort of superheroes of chemistry. I mean, I really think of you this way because some of the work that you people have done in the past, uh, well, they involve things like a, a bit of a comet's tail, you know, which blows my mind, right? There was a probe that flew through a comet's tail. Oh, yeah. There were there were particles that were scooped up by this aerogel, actually sort of you know, impacted and stuck in this aerogel. And then you guys were able to prove that some of these organic molecules, things like the building blocks of our proteins, an amino acid, for example, um, really were extraterrestrial, and you could prove that. Yeah, I mean, that was really a triumph of the analytical instrumentation and the people. You know, I mean, we had such a small amount of samples, less than a milligram, very tiny. You can't even see these particles. And we were able to extract uh, an amino acid uh, from those particles and prove for the first time that comets have the building blocks of life. That doesn't mean, when you say you found an organic compound in a comet, for example, you're not saying you found life. But the, but the cool thing is our type of life is built out of these sort of molecules. That's right. I mean, you, you have these basic gases that you see in space and comets, carbon dioxide, methane, ammonia, but we don't really consider those to be anything biological. You need something more complex. What's really cool about these comets is they're actually chemical factories. It's just amazing to me. When I think about it, you know, these building blocks are being formed in space before the Earth even formed. That's just it's kind of a crazy, crazy thought. You know, we're often taught how complex and precious life is, and of course it is, but it's amazing to think that the universe has far more rich organic chemistry going on than what happens in our bodies, that we're actually just a subset of the organic chemistry yeah. going on in space. So this is the ironic thing, right? Everybody <laughs> thinks life has got to be so complicated yeah. and complex, and it is at some level, right, when you talk about proteins and DNA. You know, there's a complexity there that we don't find DNA and proteins in, in rocks, but when you look at the basic chemicals that go into forming that comet, it's actually very simple. It's a set of 20 amino acids. It's five bases in our, in our uh, genetic code. Yeah. That's it. You know, but, but this really is an incredible chance to understand where we came from. We go to these objects, these asteroids, because they've recorded the story of the early solar system, okay? The oldest rocks in the, in the solar system. And we can learn about the Earth, frankly, you know, the evolution of the Earth. I mean, we're learning about how the Earth evolved, why life started here. The, the answer, I think, is probably in these extraterrestrial materials. It, it's a pretty incredible idea for a lot of people in, in, in not just our culture but many cultures to think of the fact that we are basically complicated rocks. And one of the things that always kind of gives me shivers when I, when I hold this little meteorite in my hand is we, we mentioned that there are organic compounds, there are amino acids and there are even, even bases, you said, the things that are nucleobase, DNA, yeah. nucleobases, that, that our biology does not use. And uh, the, the amazing thing is we're, we may be holding in our hand right now a sample of something that alien life might use. These are big questions. How did life start? Is there life elsewhere? You know you're gonna get there, okay? It may take time. It may take three years, four years, 10 years, I don't know, but you know you're gonna get there. And the questions we're trying to answer are frankly worthy of that effort. So Danny's optimistic that we're actually gonna find some answers, and frankly, so am I. That's not just wishful thinking. For the first time, we have incredible amounts of data coming back from places like Mars and also Titan. Titan is a really amazing place. It's a giant moon of Saturn. and In fact, Titan's not all that much smaller than the planet Mars. It's a big place. It has a thick atmosphere. And it's the only other place we know where it's actually raining right now, besides the Earth. I mean, it's the only place we know there's rain, here in Titan. 
Titan has really been intriguing for a long time because it has all the right ingredients for life. It's literally raining carbon material. <laughs> the organic stuff is falling out of the sky. And underneath the ground on Titan, we actually think there may be vast reservoirs of liquid water. So you've got organics and you've got water, but everything is very, very cold. It's kind of in this deep freeze. And things that are cold, the chemical reactions go slower. So it's sort of like the early Earth, but in, in a cryogenic freeze. So the question is, in conditions that are that different from Earth, does life take hold in a different way? What would life be like in that sort of environment? Three, two, one, and liftoff of the Cassini spacecraft on a billion-mile trek to Saturn. In 2005, the Europeans actually landed this wonderful little spacecraft called the Huygens Probe. It was part of NASA's larger Cassini mission to Saturn. And this was amazing. It actually parachuted through the atmosphere of Titan. And it was measuring things like the content of the gases in the atmosphere as it went down through the clouds. And there was something kind of interesting. At the very surface, kind of, kind of right before it landed, the gases were out of balance. Two very interesting ones hydrogen and acetylene. And this is one of the ways that scientists use to search for life when, when you can't just land and, and scoop up soil and put it under a, a microscope. You have to look for things being out of balance. Something is either breathing a gas in or it's breathing something out. That's how you find life very, very far away when you don't have the luxury of all the laboratories. When you think about the whole idea of life being an example of, of imbalance, that, that chemically it changes its environment, all you need to look to is yourself, really, because right now you are breathing out carbon dioxide oxide and you're breathing in oxygen. If you don't do that, you, you die. And this actually creates an imbalance in our atmosphere. Now, finding a chemical imbalance on another planet is not a proof of life, but let's say it's true. Let's say there really is life out there, even in our own solar system. Does this change the way people think about our position as human beings, about our, our place in the universe? Now, people have a lot of different perspectives on this, and I got a chance to sit down with Brother Guy Consolmagno at the Vatican Observatory. Brother Guy is a Jesuit, and he's also a planetary scientist, and he's their expert on meteorites. And uh, he also has an asteroid named after him, which I think is pretty cool. Brother Guy is an amazing spokesperson and scientist, and he's really become the go-to guy for questions about religion and extraterrestrial life. When I think about finding life, one of these days we're going to analyze some sample. It's probably going to be very indirect. I mean, my guess is we'll see something maybe on Mars someday where we can actually prove that there's nothing alive there now, but there used to be. Something was biologically processed. I think that will most likely be the first time we see life um, or evidence of it. And, um, you know, honestly, as a scientist, I had never actually given much thought. It's a scientific fact. It doesn't really have much bearing to philosophy or theology to me. So, so how, how, how do you interpret that? Well, I'll tell you the story. Remember about 20 years ago, the, the Mars meteorite, Allen Hills 84001, was right. analyzed and there was a big brouhaha because they published a paper in Science with evidence of possible fossil life exactly like that. And uh, I got a phone call. I was visiting friends, and my friend's wife hands me the phone saying it's a reporter named Woodward. And he says, so what's the religious significance of finding life on Mars? And I said, none that I can see. You know, either it's there or it's not. What's the deal? And he goes, yeah, but I've got two columns to fill by Friday. So, uh, we, you know, we came up with some, I think I found up saying, Finding life on another planet would be an indication of God's creative power, which means absolutely nothing, of course. It's a, it sounds great, has no content to it at all, and that's what they ran with. Because the fact is, if you believe that God created the universe, you can then look at the universe as a beautiful way of God expressing himself, and 
That means you better listen to the universe. In your experience, are people actually less willing to accept this idea that there's life on other worlds? Not at all. The fascinating thing is you can look not just current times. As a fellow named Ted Peters at the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences at Berkeley did a survey about five years ago showing that 90% of every religion said they would be comfortable with discovering extraterrestrials. The idea that we're alone, that human beings are the only creation, is not a religious idea. It comes from the Enlightenment. It comes from the humanists, basically, the people who thought that humanity was the center of the universe. Because in the Middle Ages, people were happy with the idea of angels and demons and the powers that moved the planets and planetary intelligences and all sorts of things that we would call bizarre today, but are certainly intelligences other than human intelligence. So it's going to happen someday that we're going to have that evidence of life. The chances are, I hope, in both of our lifetime, we will have something. Maybe indirect evidence, maybe some little microbe. What's going to happen that next day? It will be a five days wonder. And then the latest pop star divorce will push it off the news. Or the latest crisis in some distant country that no one's ever heard of before. And part of the reason why, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's because the human race is already used to the idea. But by the time we find life, it will be like when we found the first planets around other stars. To the scientists, this was one of the most wonderful things that happened. We now have a way of testing our theories about what should planets be like. To the general public, it was, what? You didn't know that already? I thought for sure there would be planets. Well, of course, we all thought for sure there would be planets. It was a relief to find them. We all think for sure there's going to be life in other places in the universe, but it will be an incredible relief to finally find it. It's funny you use the word relief because I, I feel that same way. You know, there's going to be there's going to be champagne. There's going to be looking up in the sky, and and in some way that I can't really define, feeling that something is better today, that we know that we're not the only life out there. There is something about life that has a value above and beyond the interesting science, immediate science that comes out of it, though the science is fascinating and interesting. And this goes back to relating to why do we do the science? Why is it that Mars gets lots of money for exploration? Because there's the chance of finding life there. Because there is an emotional side to what we do. As scientists, we're human beings. We're not just clever computers. We do things for reasons of the heart. I wonder if we're actually kind of born lonely, because it seems like humanity from the beginning, from thousands of years ago, we've been wondering, could there be life somewhere outside the Earth? And of course, the thing that makes loneliness a little bit more bearable is the idea of connection. And this is what the study of these meteorites is giving us. You know, I realize that in my body, there are these compounds that came from space. And that may be responsible for life getting started here on Earth. Going back to that big meteorite in the Field Museum, that big lump of iron, well, I actually have iron in my blood. It's actually why my blood is red, is because of iron. So that wasn't something that was a disconnected and distant part of the universe. That's a part of me. That, that's one of the reasons I'm walking around and, and, and talking today. So this whole story, the story of the origin of life and the origin of Earth, it allows you to look up at the night sky and see the stars shining there and say, that's my family. That's my connection to the universe.
This episode of Transistor was produced by Lauren Ober, Katie Davis, and Whitney Jones. Orbital Path is produced by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We're supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And as always, you can hear more of our shows at orbital.prx.org. I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.